An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very happy to welcome a special guest, Kathy Engelberg. Kathy is an incredibly accomplished CEO. She is the former CEO of Deloitte and currently the commissioner of the Women's National Basketball Association. Welcome, Kathy. Oh, it's great to be here, John. Good to see you. So let me ask about your origin story. You walked on to the basketball team at Lehigh and then were named captain. I think you were also captain of the lacrosse team. Then you were the head of Deloitte auditing, then CEO of Deloitte overall, and the first female head of a big four accounting firm. Now you're the first commissioner of the WNBA. Clearly you relish challenges. Why? <laughs> what, what makes you do this? Yeah, I guess it's a little bit of my upbringing. We'll go way back. I'm, I'm one of eight children. I have five brothers. So I competed in this man's world from the moment I was born with five brothers and they all played basketball. And my father was actually drafted into the NBA, John, in 1957 by the Detroit Pistons. And at the time they were called, I think, the Fort Wayne Pistons. So you might say I have some basketball in my DNA. And after a long, blessed career at Deloitte, 33 years, you know, I said I wanted to do something with the broad women's leadership platform and something that I had a passion for. And so sports was where I ended up. And I've been fortunate. It's been quite a two years. I mean, we did a collective bargaining agreement. COVID hit a racial justice crisis in this country, you know, leading a league of 80 percent women of color. So, yes, the challenges are all there. But, you know, look, this is why I was tired is to come in. We're in the middle of a, a major multi-year, multi-dimensional business transformation. So I love it. But I, I wish things were a little calmer for sure. But it's all that competitiveness with those five brothers growing up. Yeah, so let's talk about the WNBA. Now, the former heads of the league were called president. You're the first commissioner. Is that more than a semantic change? What is it? Is it a change in role in your vision that prompted the name change? Yeah, I actually think it was very progressive at the time for Adam Silver's commissioner, the MBA, who was responsible for hiring me. And it comes with enormous responsibility and it gives you a seat at the table with that title. And I basically told Adam, I don't need the title, but he said, you know, it gives you a seat at the table and important dialogue and conversations. And again, little did we know we'd hit a global pandemic and a racial crisis at the same time. And that seat at the table was important to have another commissioner representing basketball in America at that table. So it does come with responsibility, but I couldn't, you know, I, I think it was progressive at the time. And I, I think I didn't ask for it. A lot of people think I did since I was a CEO, but I would never been about titles. And I think it's important that the players believe they are a major professional sports league and major professional sports leagues have commissioners. So that was symbolically important too, I think, as we went into collective bargaining negotiations to also say it's a commissioner on the other side of the table who runs this league and is going to transform uh, this league. So it, it, 
it, so it had it definitely had meaning, but it is just a title after all, John. Well, just a title. What people pay, as you know, millions of dollars in branding exercise, and it seems to me that it, it actually does have resonance beyond you know changing the letters. Well, and societal uplifting of women in the workforce and women leadership. And so, you know, again, these young women, probably average age in their mid-20s that I lead now in the WNBA, the players, it's important for them to think that you know, they are professional working women, but they're professional athletes who are the best at their craft in the world and they have the commissioner. So it, it was meaningful. Well, let's talk about those women. You've mentioned some of these issues already. WNBA Finals MVP Candace Parker recently said, and I quote, we are a league that is a majority of the minority in this world. And I say that in sense of race, sexuality, gender, all of that. So we're what all companies want and need, end quote. Now, for years, that same set of criteria was viewed as, well, I actually don't know how different people viewed it, but it was at least not an unambiguously positive view. I, I know irony doesn't come through well in a podcast, so let me explicitly label this as irony in advance. Oh my goodness, a league full of strong women of color, and some of them are lesbians, end of irony. That seemed to be the reaction of some potential advertisers and partners until recently. And I think Ms. Parker is right. And your plans for growing the league do embrace diversity and inclusion. So what's changed? Is it change in leadership? Is it the society's changed? Is it both? But I'd love your thoughts about it and how diversity, equity, and inclusion play out in the future as an advantage to the WNBA. Yeah, I think, you know, it's something about the exposure of these amazing athletes, not because they're a diverse set of women. It's also because they're becoming more representative of the next generation of leaders, the next generation of athletes. I always say when I look out at the WNBA players, they could be our future senators. They could be our future government leaders. They could be our future leaders in, you know, non-for-profit organizations. So I think companies are now, to your point about what's changing, I think companies are seeing the benefit from aligning with a values-driven company like the WNBA. And I always say, we're the most inclusive league in sports. We're the most diverse league in sports. And, you know, we get the highest scores on diversity, not just in the player population, but also our coaching and our general managers and our front and back office. And that's important too. And so, and I think the role models that these players represent. So we come off obviously a difficult time in this country and the players, we help them. I always say it's player-led, but league-facilitated. Um, start a social justice council. And they start with three pillars this year, health and equity, particularly in communities of color, LGBTQ plus, advocacy and civic rights and voting. And so what like three timely things even before a lot has evolved over the past year. So they're trying to always find what's important to their values, what they want to stand for. And I think when you have the most diverse league in sports, it's actually easy to, to amplify what these players are doing, to be proud of what they're doing, because now companies are seeing the benefit of aligning and endorsing and sponsoring the WNBA, which is why we're having so much success coming off of our 25th season. Just note, like we're the only women's professional sports league to last 25 seasons by double any other women's sports league. So there's a reason for that. And it's the strong just, social justice and community minded and our fans skew younger, more diverse, and probably more women when compared to men's league. So we're such an interesting place for companies to pay attention to because of that DE&I platform, but also because of who these players are 
and how inclusive they are around, you know, tolerance for who they are, because they take on a heavy burden, by the way. They're not social justice activists by schooling, by trade. They've had to live it. And I've been pretty impressed with how they've uh, represented themselves. To what your partners are doing, and how they're embracing But let's just the social justice aspect in and of itself for a moment. Uh, WNBA players, as you say, have long been aware of their public platform and have used it to embrace social justice, sometimes for whatever that some of the men's leagues do, but they actually do it more consistently. Um, and sometimes those issues are remarkably close at hand. So as you say, you took over your commissioner, you get hit with a pandemic and racial justice issues. And during the pandemic, with the NBA playing in a bubble, members of the Atlanta Dream actually endorsed a candidate for U.S. Senate wearing his T-shirts during practice. And that one was actually running against a part owner of the team. Um, do you remember where you were and what you thought when you first heard well, about first that Well, first of all, I was in the bubble was with the WNBA at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. We had planned to spend our entire season in the bubble, given that for a league of our size and scale to be out of the sports landscape for 20 months is pretty existential. So we were all in the bubble because of my prior life, John, having worked at Deloitte and having dealt with, obviously, politics all the time. It was something that certainly didn't surprise me in the end. But, you know, we know it's politics. We know how divisive our society has become. And quite frankly, because I had built some trust with the players, we started talking to the players about find elected leaders that stand for your values, find out what their platforms are, work on civic engagement and voting rights and get out the vote. Many of our players did and many of our, our players in November actually worked at polling places at some of our arenas and outside of our arenas. And this was all something that, again, before all of this happened with everything from 2020, people knew the WNBA, they knew what they stood for, they knew about Maya Moore, who in her prime Pause from her career at the WNBA to go work on criminal justice reform and other players had their advocacy for community activities and and now millions know what they stand for so you know again the players took on a heavy burden during that summer both from a social justice and politics and playing at the highest level during a pandemic where they were nervous they would get sick and so you know look we ended up not having one COVID positive case during the season not having to postpone a game the players ended up really building their brand around, again, advocating for whether it was voting rights, a particular candidate, and they got a lot of credit. And so I, again, I'm a leader that when I came into the league, my first pillar was player first. I knew we had to rebuild trust, not knowing what we'd face, but we had to rebuild trust, get a collective bargaining agreement done. And we drew off that trust with the players that, again, that we would amplify what they're doing. We would help facilitate the social justice um, council and, and we would support them. And that's what we did. And that was core to the values of who the WNBA were. That may not have worked where I worked before, but it worked here because I knew the players and I knew how to build trust with them. And I trusted them, even though I also identified that I'm not them and I don't walk in their shoes. And it was hard. The hardest day was, you know, after the Jacob Blake incident, when the players wanted to pause and we had national television games and the players were like, we don't want to play. And at first I was like, maybe I should try to convince them to play. And then I just started to listen. I mean, it's a great le leadership lesson after 35 years in business that I'm like, I just need to listen. And we had one player who had a five-year-old son that we let our players who were moms bring them into our quarantine bubble. And this player turned to me and said, in 10 years, this could be my son with tears in her eyes. 
So lesson in leadership, I listened and I, I said, oh, now it really hit me. Now I get it. Now I get why it's so important to these players to not just not play that game, but to take a day of reflection or two days or however long they wanted to take and work through what was bothering them, why they took on this heavy burden during a pandemic and what was happening in the outside world from both a political and a social justice perspective. So just really brought me some clarity and listening always works, John, especially when you're fairly new in a role, in a new leadership role. So one of the things the players have bought into is basically increasing the revenues for the NBA, which they will share in, and franchise values, which the owners will share in. Towards that end, you've signed deals with various strategic partners, not just advertisers, from Amazon to Nike, AT&T, and indeed Deloitte. But to me, the most interesting deal, at least to date, is this three-way deal with ESPN and Google, which increased the number of games that ESPN shows and also the network added a women's sports highlight to its flagship show, Sports Center. How do you think about partnerships beyond the obvious, which is revenue? And how does it build to what I assume is the Lumi 800 pound gorilla in 2025, a new television rights deal? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something, again, I was hired to come in and think about how do we get more strategic partners, not just for the revenue, but also to activate and market this league and these players to where they deserve. If you study sports, do you study other leagues that are in their 75th year, like the NBA or like the NHL and NFL who are in their 100th year and MLB? You study how did they grow their leagues? How did they, were they, did they have big media deals at first? They didn't have household names and they built them, but who helped the NBA build a household name? Nike with Michael Jordan. And we actually had a big rivalry before that called Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And then obviously then that became Shaq and Kobe and now Steph and Kevin Durant and, and LeBron. So I study a lot of that. And so when we bring in partners, they have to be strategic. I'll tell you, it was a very good year for the WNBA when you signed Amazon and Google in the same week. Two of the biggest market cap companies in the world, two of the biggest tech companies. That's that's a good week, but we do have amazing partners. And you know, you mentioned Google. Google stepped up and said, "How do we help beyond just you know revenue?" And I said, "We need more games. We need more exposure on social media. We need to elevate household names. We need to drive rivalries." And so Google then partnered with ESPN on our behalf. And as you said, then ESPN steps up, who has been our longtime partner since the beginning of the league and adds segments. But these are all signs and symbols of a league on its way to long-term growth. Candace Parker on the cover of the 2K game this year, the, the e-game for basketball. The WNBA players on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Sue Bird in a Carmex commercial. Sabrina Ionescu in a State Farm commercial with Chris Paul, who was a really good sport, as was Steph. So you think about all these signs and signals, our, our merchandise, our orange hoodie becoming kind of like standing for the power of women, this orange hoodie with a new logo woman and brand that was launched as, as I was joining the league. So I was blessed to inherit a very strong brand. And so um, sitting on, on top of a very strong game. And now we're trying to transform the ecosystem. So the biggest thing is valuation. Valuation of media rights deals. You talk about one coming up, but it's all of our media rights. It's, um, you know, when we sign media rights fees, what I want to get behind, and John, you know, from my prior life, I was a valuation specialist. So I want to get behind the guts of the valuation that I believe there's a bias against women's sports on, especially women's T20 
team sports, which is very hard compared to individual sports. So this is um, going to come down to, again, companies who want, want to play an enormous role in supporting women and diverse women and increasing our visibility to how do we get that exposure? How do we build those household names? We need to be better as a league, but the ecosystem, including media companies, have to be better in stepping up on what are the biases in the valuation. We're just a microcosm of the broader society around maybe some unconscious bias in valuation models, spreadsheet-driven decisions. And I've been known to say that no spreadsheet ever yielded a good answer for women in the workplace. And I, I believe that still, you know, coming out of corporate into sports. And so we're coming off a historic season across a variety of metrics. And we've had our most watched regular season in 14 years or something like that, viewership up 51% in a very crowded sports landscape. So again, how do you then take that along with the strong social justice platform of the players and the diversity and factor that in? I know, John, you do work around sustainability. And ESGs and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and some of those metrics are quantitative. It's are qualitative. It's not all quantitative. So how do you build a model? How do you transform the landscape using, you know, at least my experience of quantitative and qualitative metrics that eliminate some of the unconscious bias that's in the models today? Is expansion in the near future? So um, as I've said, you know, as I came in and assessed the league, we have 12 teams. We're only in 12 cities. And one of the first conversations I had with a potential sponsor was, you know, gave the whole vision for the league. We're going to be player first, stakeholder success, fan engagement. We're going to innovate digital. We're going to expand globally, globalize the game, meaning bring in more fans globally. We have more draft picks now coming from outside the U.S. And how do you draw those fans in globally, build a global platform and global games like the NBA has done so beautifully and so one way to do that also is to be in more cities. So it's certainly, as I've told the media more broadly, it's on the list. Uh, I think COVID probably put us a little bit behind what I originally thought we were going to do, but that's okay because we had a year and a half without fans in our seats. And then back half of the season coming off the Olympic break this year, we started to have limited fans to full arenas by the time we got to the WNBA finals, which was amazing to have two sellouts in Chicago for game three and game four. So as we now are coming off of all that and looking forward to future years, expansion is definitely on the list we were doing. It'll be a very data-driven exercise, John, a very data-driven leader as far as what markets would be good. Can you find the right ownership groups? Do you have companies based there who share the values of the WNBA around diversity, equity, and inclusion? So it's going to be very data-driven to find a list of cities that uh, would make sense and go from there. And I would say during the, our 26th season next year, we'll have a lot more uh, data and start to make decisions and narrowing a list of many cities. So the good news is, John, because of the momentum we have, we have a lot of people out there on social media tweeting that their city wants a WNBA team. There's rumors that there's been bids for WNBA teams in certain cities. And so obviously I'm just working on an exercise now, looking at a hundred cities, trying to narrow that list to the ones that make sense and see if we can find committed or ownership groups that we think would be great in the markets that we think would be best for everyone involved and to grow the game. So no doubt, I know it's a long answer, but the answer is yes, it's on the list. It also sounded like a Deloitte consultant looking at winnowing, <laughs> winnowing 100 down, cross-referencing with ownership potential and what's in the city. So, so that brings up an obvious question. What's the difference between being CEO of Deloitte and commissioner of the WNBA from a management point of view? 
Yeah, it's so interesting. I do get asked that question a lot. In addition to why did you take this job after a long career in business? What people don't realize, sports is big business. Big business is about relationships. And therefore, that part of my job is not that different. I went from leading a workforce of 100,000 to a player group of 144. That's different. The stakeholders are different. We have owners of 12 teams. Obviously, they compete against one another. So that's different. Obviously, you have fans, you have uh, referees. So I set out now this year, I did the same thing, did a 12-city tour of all our cities. I meet with fans, I meet with officials, I meet with the owners, I meet with their teams. So the, the, the ecosystem's definitely different. The stakeholder group is different, but the business of growing and the business of deploying your capital and allocating capital and making the right decision around where should you spend on digital? Should you invest here? Should you invest in, in, you know, we just had four, what they call drops this year on our WNBA top shot, which are NFTs, these non-fungible tokens. And it went great. They were sold out. They're reselling in the secondary market. A couple of our players for $10,000 for a four second video clip. So that's all the same as what I was doing at Deloitte. Deloitte was just bigger scale and we're investing in cloud and technology and nascent technologies and adjacent technologies. It's not that different here. It's just surrounding my three pillars, player first, stakeholder success, and fan engagement. So uh, really, I laugh sometimes at how similar sports is to my prior life. But again, the stakeholders are definitely different. Let's finish with a couple of quick hit questions. What do you do to relax? <laughs> Spend time with my kids and play golf and tennis. So I still try to find time to balance all of that. It's really important to me. Everyone that knows, knows uh, family is really important to me. What are you reading right now? Book-wise, I actually just read The Heart of Business by uh, Hubert Jolie from uh, former CEO of Best Buy. And I mean, really interesting, be authentic, be clear, and be conscious of what your true role is. So, you know, again, whenever I can find pearls of wisdom in a book, I don't have a lot of time to read. But I'll tell you, during the pandemic and taking a lot of walks, I've now become a huge podcast fan, John, including yours and some leadership podcasts. Um, but you know, just for fun, there's only so many leadership podcasts you can listen to. I also became a fan of true crime podcasts. So I'm doing more podcast listening than reading these days. Do you listen to music as well? And if so, what type of music do you listen to? I do. I'm very, um, you know, never have changed. Elton John, Billy Joel, and because I'm from New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen. So that's it still constantly. Last question. You, you now are the commissioner of the WNBA. You were an athlete in college. But as a fan, is there a particular athlete you'd like to meet? I would have loved to have met Jackie Robinson. I'm blessed today that any living athletes, I've met a ton of them now that I'm in this role and even in my prior role. But, you know, a Jackie Robinson, I would have loved to have met. Um, obviously, you know, some of the trailblazers in women's sports who are no longer living that put women's sports on the map and led to Title IX, which is we're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Title IX next year. So yeah, I, there's a, a variety. I'd love to go back and talk to, you know, how did you become a trailblazer? Have you ever met Billie Jean King or Martina yes. in terms of, and um, was, was that a fond wish or just happenstance? No, I, I've met both. Billie Jean's a big WNBA fan. I've met mm -hmm. Martina at the U.S. Tennis Open in New York every September. And yeah, no, they're both amazing athletes. Obviously, Billie Jean was such a broad platform around being the tra trailblazer in not just tennis, but across the board, the courage that she's had over time. So 
just an amazing person to meet and talk with. And in fact, when I became the WMBA commissioner, Billy Jean came in to my offices to, to meet with me um, pretty early on, actually before the pandemic. So, um, and, you know, just amazing. And I, I had met her at corporate events and things like that, but amazing to, to meet with her and chat with her about my vision for the WMBA and to share thoughts about how her trailblazing has now you know, these players today stand on giant shoulders of people like Billie Jean King and the trailblazer she was. We'll leave it there. You've been listening to Outside In with John McCormick and our special guest, Kathy Engelbert, Commissioner of the WNBA. Thanks so much, Kathy. Thank you, John. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John McCormick and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcast, or we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.